Crash Chords Podcast. I'm your host, Steve. I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And I'm John. Oh, I'm just John. Just John. Just John. John. I'm, not even, John. I'm not even sure I can be qualified as a host. Look, you, you, you would have had a nickname, but you keep denying it. You know, me and Steve came up with a brilliant nickname for you, and you We're not going it. to go into that. That's just mean. <laughs> what, Jan Saunders? It's not a nickname. It's, it's a nickname. Not, That's not no, your name. It's a mispronunciation of my name. Like, that's all it is. It's, it's just... Today's episode is brought to you by the Trans Am, the muscle car your uncle refuses to pass down to you. <laughs> we just had a conversation on them, and I was showing them the origins, which actually came from the Pontiac GTO back in the 60s, earlier 60s. The muscle car destined to go to Jan Saunders when he accepts his mm. true identity. Well, there you go. <laughs> See, uh, I brought it back. Uh, <laughs> he was so way safe. To bring it back. He was in that safe zone. He was, was gone. He was, was happy. Was way going, to bring it back. I was going uh, muscle car, and beautiful. you guys went no. Beautiful. Mm. Uh, today we are doing Jan Tiersen. Does anyone know Jan Tiersen? So you Madam, mentioned... Tell us, audience. Reach, reach back in time and tell us so exactly. we can go forward. Um, well, you had mentioned that he had done some soundtrack work for, for movies that we'd be familiar with. Yes, one, one film. I'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, needless to say, he's a French composer. We'll be doing his latest work, USA, which is E-U-S-A, spelt all in caps here. More on that in a moment also. <laughs> but interestingly, he's a French composer who doesn't really consider himself one. His, his music has been called minimalist, uh, also classical pop. And he has also done what I guess could be called post-rock. But I personally find that his music is like a bridge between not so much the pop and the classical divide, but also people at varying musical skill levels. Like, I guess because of those minimalist qualities, intermediate piano players tend to say, hey, I can play that. And they're often inclined to because his music has, to put it broadly, a delicate beauty to it. Something very unassuming, but hardly vapid. I think it's hard to imagine someone saying, you know, just blech outright to his music. <laughs> There's a mass appeal there, which, as I started to say, might just as easily be appreciated by someone of an advanced piano skill level because it can be a nice reprieve from all the rigor that they might typically have to deal with, but also his music isn't without its own challenges. And lastly, his music is just seems to be always a crowd pleaser. That's my experience, at least, despite never actually having taken the plunge into playing his music. I think maybe I tried my hand at One Piece, although I forget its name. That was a while back. Anyway, back to that film that I mentioned earlier. That film is Amelie, which was a French film from 2001, but... Honestly, I wouldn't even consider it a foreign film at this point because it got some pretty international acclaim. It was definitely more of an indie flick, but that, I guess, is what brought the name Jan Tiersen to most households all over the world. I don't know. It just seemed to be a really, really popular film that didn't look like it was going to be so popular. But, yeah, that's what I suppose launched him into international acclaim. But being uh, such a musician and ever so French about it, he has loads of humility and lots of disclaimers uh, to come into play. He's FYI, actually got some... if you're French and you disagree with Steve's definition of a French person, you can send your hate mail to <laughs> steve.nagel at crashcourse.com. Oh, this is going to be a big inbox. <laughs> 
he's got a lot. It's going to be a bit. I like this bit. We're going. I like that bit. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Here's some of the quotes that I. This is where his disclaimers come into play. That's what I said earlier. That 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 thing between classical and pop. I don't think he believes it is such so as stark as perhaps I have made it out to be, or as many others have made it out to be. This is a quote taken from Wikipedia. You can find it anywhere. There is no frontier between classical music and popular music. You are free to work with whatever you want. For me, it's natural to use a lot of different instruments and textures and sounds and noises because life is like that. So that's simple enough. Uh, Here's another quote. Let's live in an enormous world where we can create sound and use it randomly with no rules at all. Let's play with sound, forget all knowledge and instrumental skills, and just use instinct the same way punk did. Wow. Yeah. It's That's often, actually really cool. It's not often that you hear someone equate the principles behind their artistic drive within the classical community back to punk. But he does. Well, and he punk, openly admits it. Punk is, a mu- is as much a music as it is a movement, as we've talked about before, you it's know, a, yeah. in culture. And I so, think it's a set of ideals. But, yeah, that too. But well, I, I don't see not him all of them producing... <laughs> I don't see him producing a classical ghost punk album. Well, no, but it's it's because he's not making punk music again. It's more about the ideals, I think, and the mentality. I think put frame simply, of mind. Put, put simply, he's trying to like remove the cerebral element. Yeah, yeah, I think so, and make things a little more approachable and engaging, but not in a way that you know is so far removed from what others in his vein does. I would love to hear an oboe shred. Just just throwing that one out there, though. I, I had to bring that up. Okay. <laughs> Do you want it from him specifically? Anybody. Anybody. Well, Anybody. he plays a few other instruments, but it is true. Piano set, tends to be his go-to, and it seems that a lot of piano players like to pursue his, his sheet music because mm-hmm. it's just, I don't know, it caters to piano very easily. And surprise, surprise, this album is largely built out of the piano and nothing else, which I think, surprisingly enough, is actually a first for us. Yeah, I don't know that we've done a straight-up piano album. Like, we've had... Piano is the primary instrument. We've done uh, variations on Ben Folds, who, uh, of course, most of the time the lead instrument is piano. Well, even if it's not surprising for you guys, it's surprising for me. (laughs) Well, because you're a pianist. Yes. Right. So of all the instruments here that we play, that's the only one that is, like, at the top of the list, and I've never really, like, chosen it throughout all my picks in four years. Well, I guess that that could also be based just on since we try and keep it relevant and new, and there hasn't been a pianist who put out something new that you were really interested in, I think. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is from dead people. Right. <laughs> that's a problem, you know. Right, because well, we don't do dead people music. That is true. Well, I mean, we, that's not we, true We either. would. We'd be willing to. It's just that they've been dead for like a century or so, in some cases. That's a little far. Yeah. A little far, a little far back, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. One guy should have been dead a lot earlier than he was. That guy Leo Ornstein that I've mentioned, yeah. he should have been dead like a long time ago, but instead we missed him only by a margin of like 15 years. He died in 2002, but that's because he lived to be 108. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So. That's... Food that's a long. That's a long time. Yeah. Well, why don't we just dive into the record then? After that <laughs> moment of awkward silence. On the subject of death, let's go into track one. Hint. Hint one, because there are many. Yes, there's actually eight on the record um, that are interspersed throughout the record, and it starts with the first and ends with the eighth. So they're, they'll be weaved throughout the record, and they play an integral part to the structure of the record. Hint actually means path. In Breton, B-R-E-T-O-N. That's a language of, I believe, Celtic origins. Death is a path. Yes. (laughs) Sure. We'll go with that. (laughs) All right. But um, It goes one direction. The hints are specifically cited as being 
not quite interludes, but more of like setup and introductions to a lot of the different theme work that's done in this album. So we're going to be referring to them as such because most of them are actually very, very short for the album. Most of these pieces, some of them are even like 45 seconds or give or take, something that short. They're also very bleak. I mean, most of the time, one can't say death bleak. But bleak. I would say that the first one, as we get into Hent 1, this one's less bleak than the others. This one has an air of positivity. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting because it starts with, you know, hooting, bird call of some kind, with some ambient kind of just fuzz or static. Sort of sounds like an owl in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit of a trill that makes me believe it's not an owl, but it doesn't really matter. But later on just... throughout the song, there's a bird kind of cooing akin to maybe a pigeon, but not quite yeah. later. And so I'm not even sure if it's the same kind of bird or a different bird. And, you but know. It, it progresses pretty slowly. I'll yeah. admit, it's not nearly as bleak yet. Some yeah. of the hens do tend to get pretty bleak. But yeah, this one starts off just peaceful, but a region where I feel like there's definitely something unsettled lingering. I don't know, it's it's about the build here. It's about the single piano chord that you yeah. get, or rather just the interval, at the very tippity-top register of the piano. And then there, you still have the birds in the background, still kind of fluttering away. It's, it's still very peaceful at this point. And then at some point the volume equalizes, and then the middle register comes into play, and then the vocals. And this is where I really do wish we had a translation, because these vocals, I believe, are in French. And, uh... Over that, I don't think there's much more to this track apart from like the the hissing that you hear later on, kind of like a, a, a steam valve almost. It's it's like it, it is not purely piano, but the the minimal usage where he actually dips into other things. In this case, birds hisses. Uh, slight little rumbles and the barest of vocals. In fact, only here in this track and at the very very end of the album are thin enough that they make me feel hollow. Right, which I can kind of see where you're coming from with that. I think it's important to cite, since we're talking about the vocals. That you know, the emptiness, the deep down emptiness. You know what I feel? <laughs> I get it. I got it. <laughs> That's what I feel. I got it. All right. All right. But not death. Right. Anyway, as I was saying, the vocals, though, aren't even sung. It's essentially spoken word. Um, it's a woman speaking in what we think is French. Because I don't speak French, so I definitely can't speak The accent is definitely within that but, um area. But it definitely feels like... For me, it felt like the opening to a movie with like uh, uh, the lead character giving a narrative over scene work. Like that's the kind of tone I got from this. Not necessarily that imagery specifically, but it was that kind of feel. Very at least. Tarantino. Yeah, it felt. It yeah. felt very. No, I don't hear that at all. Uh, what you you didn't watch Inglorious Bastards? Yeah, but like like it it, it would have fit perfectly in that movie. I don't know that I would agree with that. All I'm saying is that the, the, the woman vocalist here isn't actually singing. She's just speaking and it's... Smoky, quiet, yeah, very it's, downplayed. It's it's very subtle and I think it's designed to just kind of be another instrument, a small effect on what is already a fairly minimalistic piece. But, well, there is an island and it's off the coast of France mm-hmm. and it's called Ushant. Which is um, what this record is based on. It's Yusa is another name for Ushant. Right. And it, it seems to be the place that, I think it's where he's from. I believe it's where he recorded his first album. I'm not actually sure that's exactly where he's from, but I know that's where he recorded his first album. And, and he it seems is that living been, there now. That I, I confirm. It was also like the origin. Like his initial success was sort of a local thing. Got and it. it was around that region, right? And then it really blossomed with the soundtrack to Amelie. So it seems there's this connection to that island. And especially because this is entitled uh, Yusa. I don't know if maybe this is kind of like a back to the island kind of thing. Right. But Because I, I still kind of hear Jan Tiersen's 
work throughout all of maybe it's just been an element in everything he's ever done I mean it could be I, don't, I can't speak it's how he visualizes the world and if you look up pictures of, of Ushant it's a it's a fairly bleak place if you just look at let's say the the fjord like coastline you know mm-hmm. and the waves crashing across I'm sure that's not the entirety of the island but you compare that to some of these these hints these paths, and I can easily picture them as various scenes surrounding the island, some of them more positive than others. It's important to note also that because of the vocals and because of the presentation of the piano here, the this intro track has a more theatrical feel, theatrical or cinematic. It, it feels like, you know, I don't, I'm not picturing a specific scene with this one, but it definitely is not surprising to me that he wrote music for a soundtrack for a movie. Like, I can see where that cinematic quality would come from. But this has a very serious and kind of, like, dramatic kind of tone to me. It doesn't seem lighthearted or dark. It just kind of seems very serious and focused. And I, I'm i not getting that 100%, but I'm in the same ballpark. I'm not feeling, like Steve said, the hollowness on the inside. This feels... Well, there's a there's a dead comment. Like, I, on one hand, it's hollow. At the same time, it's serene. And I, I can't reconcile as to why I feel both at the same time. But I would say the fact that it gives me both at once is a kind of success. I think you said at some point in a recent episode that something was doing something. It was scratching an itch that you did not know you had. That was last week. Yeah, it was last week. And that's actually kind of what I'm getting here. I can see that. I can visualize that. And I can see this actually sort of fitting the same sort of role as last week's for me, as as being something I can just groove along to and experience in the moment by moment. But last week, we pretty much determined that was not something I, I like. we could groove along to. Not in all instances. Like, Float because along it is to. more. Just meander mentally see, along. Those are to. all things that I would ascribe to this and not last week. I'm kind of in the same boat with Steve. I think that also with this track specifically. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like it repeats on itself much, though we may get more of that later as the record goes on. It does seem, especially since in the beginning we have those singular chords just ringing out. It feels very freeform. Yeah. Like, that again, not in tone, but in principle. Some of the same things he said about punk before and how it kind of just like, you, not you make it up as you go, but you follow your instincts. Right. And it, steam, it seems very instinctual, which is something, you know, I, I believe that composers very often can get a little bit too much in their own head to cerebral about it and I I I feel like this this principle so far is benefiting the work but of course that's not the end of the story no and you know when we move on to Pern the second track you know there's more exposition here I mean it, it, from the very beginning we have this kind of beautiful rolling piano playing that's much faster than we were getting before and it's more notes together comparatively I comparatively mean, yeah. Yeah. It, it exhibits the less atmospheric and showier side of Tiersen's work right but you get these rolling hills against the kind of satisfying pop chord structure. And and this is what I meant earlier when I said there are some things here that are extremely serene. Mm-hmm. You know, this doesn't have the same bleakness. It almost has uh, a little bit of the hollowness to it, but I think that's just in the again, the minimalist structure of the work. Like, things don't really progress rapidly. They're very, like, it's subtle little shifts from chord to chord, but they're still satisfying enough that you're just as easily to listen to a pop song and then listen to this and be like, that was a nice compliment to the rest of my, uh, the rest of my soundtrack, the rest of my playlist. And it's funny that you mentioned Rolling Hills because the kind of, I did get scenery from this song, I did get images, and I kind of imagine someone sitting on a train, kind of pensive, as rolling hills are passing by, and that, yeah. that kind of added that kind of hollowness, like you're on an empty train alone looking out the window, which which just by the showier nature of the earlier, the very beginning of this track, I got that feel. Yeah. 
Well, the uh, low to mid range, what the left hand's doing in this track, is very much staying within a very stable framework. It, it, it's, it's setting a groundwork that allows a lot to be built on top of this. Uh, because the pattern it's repeating, an a eight-note progression, doesn't really fluctuate too much over the course of the track. Yeah, and that gets, I guess that really gets closer to the problem, because by me saying that, oh, you could just, you know, throw it on a playlist, I do not believe you should break up his work. I actually think his work is best appreciated in the broad, on an album scale, perhaps even on a concert scale. You know, most of this album plays kind of like a recital, and I feel like that's how it probably should be appreciated, but if there was a critique there, it would probably be those little those little repetitions you know there are these uh, rolodexes that he tends to go through like each and every card is the to turn of the page and it has something unique on it right but then he tends to stay on that card for a little while and you can hear and d discover dissect the patterns fairly easily at that point which isn't a problem it just means that you know you can hear the partitioned nature of the work but maybe does that in the end make it more fluid i guess maybe that's up to the listener actually i would i would argue that the fluidity is benefited by keeping that repetition going. Because what the right hand is doing, and the left and right hand seem to know what each other are doing. Ah, joke. What the right hand is doing is playing around with the higher register and using a lot of, I, I, I want to say filler, but filler is not the appropriate way to phrase it, but uh, doing a lot around the configuration that is so steady in the lower and mid register. The rapidity in his right hand is working very well with what the left hand's doing, with the nice rhythm, that, that lower register, that mid register, because it does jump up. He's, he's filling in a lot of the gaps and working around a lot of the notes. And then there's that slight shift where the left hand jumps up in pitch, and then the right hand gets nice and punctual. So they start trading off jobs. One starts doing one thing and then flips it. I, I, I like this back and forth he's starting to build between just the two different ideas, the very rhythm-oriented section and the very color-oriented section. No, that, that's a good observation. I think that's probably more dissection than that is than is typically bestowed upon Jan Tiersen's work. I mean, only because I think it's very easily, like we said earlier, to just go with the flow. But there are details in there. These are the kind of things that higher skilled piano players might appreciate. And I think it's something really, really worth diving into within what we generally call minimalism, but it probably often differs from artist to artist as to whether that's what they want to be called. But this is, this is what it's about. It's about those details, even though it may sound simplistic. And going back to what John was talking about, about the rapidity of even the parts of the track, even the track as a whole, it goes in an A, B, A structure where he starts a certain way, he changes it up as John described in the middle and then comes back to it towards the end. And, yeah. and it's not even like it's an A prime. It is absolutely the same as how the song started, which which gives me this kind of feeling of even more so that kind of scene I was describing about being on a train because it's almost like a commute almost or something that could be considered cyclical, like you'll come back around on. It's about two, 32 seconds in that he does that, that he moves away from that pop chord structure. We move away from that, we move into more of this like separate oscillating pattern. It almost feels like this is actually the beginning of the story, which is again, not unheard of. Typically part B's tend to, or rather you hear the introduction, which in this case, we're just going to call that A here, right? Or that's the chord 
chorus that we go back to, and then B, you get your content. You get the story starting to build. But it, And there is a melody here, and it starts building here, but very, very slowly. In the beginning, really, it's, it's just like a single note, the beginning of the B section, that is. It's just a single note, and then eventually we get the full octave, and before you even realize, then you're embroiled in this rather beautiful melody that does actually cross the bar line. It's something that you don't really experience that in the part A. Part A, it's just you feel these kind of, you know, rote chord, next chord, next chord, whether he's rolling or not, you know, whatever he's doing, you do feel that pulse, this kind of roundabout cyclical nature. But I do feel that B is a much more blended section. I especially enjoy when the B section allows for a, a, a nice shift. Instead of going through a, a rising motion, he then starts taking that height in the rise and brings it back down and, and finishes it up with a statement of a of a falling motion on top of everything. And the way he shifts it, it feels so natural, even though it does it almost scream happiness to sadness. It really goes through a fairly sharp emotional change. I would even Yet say the, tragedy at a certain yeah, point there. Like, which, you know, maybe it's a it little gets, early in this album to start saying things like that, because of course we don't really have it's a, a little story tragedy, here. if anything. But it's it's probably as much of a narrative as we've ever gotten in a in a minimalist work. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that foreshadowing to sadness is not unheard of, considering in track three, which is Hent two, not to confuse you, again, track three, which is Hent two, um, has this kind of drone about it, and when the piano comes in this time. It's much slower than it's been at any other point on the record. More focused and fainter, almost like a tenderness, but but a tenderness that's more, you know, weakness almost, like uh, uh, you know, like something's giving weight or giving way. This is where I would unequivocally use the word bleak. I, mm, I'm not, still not there because in the first track I didn't quite get the emotional connection as you two. It was still more of a a visualization of something. Beautiful but empty. Here, I'm in a malaise. This does feel like it's setting me up for an emotional journey as opposed to a visual journey. But it's not bleak. It's not uh, the idea of maybe hopelessness or something like that that is usually associated with bleak. This is more just a general... Upset stomach is a bad way of putting it, oh. but it's that kind of a feel of like you just don't feel good today. Nah, that's, that's that's not quite the way of it. I this seems to me to have farther reaching implications that those which might apply to like the scale of your life and not just the scale of the day. I, that's, I that's, think I'm somewhere between you two because I get a foreshadowing to the bleakness, but again, comparatively to the rest of the works and even the rest of the hence, it's not as bleak. But, but I definitely get a sense of it. Again, I think it's more subtle here, and that might be why John doesn't see it as much. I think that, you know, also this is much shorter than the first hint, so it's more concise and compact, and it's gone before you know it almost. I actually still visualize it um, as the, the definition of the word hint. I feel like this is more of a journey type of an idea because just in the first two they started somewhere and are ending me at a different place not ending at a different place ending me bringing me to a different spot than i was previously while if you just take pern for example or if we go on to the next track those seem to be a very solid individual place and we're not going on journeys with these so much as we're getting the impression of a location or of an idea yeah that's interesting like the hints to me are actually 
the the singular place even though that is the path they seem to have at least this common thread especially by the time you get up to you know hint eight um like they have a common thread to them that almost seems like that's the path's origin and you have all these different paths in front of you which are the separate tracks on the album and those are the different paths that you go down before finally landing you back at the same place which is contrary to the idea of path but maybe that simply means that in the hence you have the paths at your disposal you have options I mean, Maybe that's too abstract for this, but again, you have little to work off of here. I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't. it's just the raw feeling, and then we'd have to have that discussion, which I'm sure we should. I I just don't see it that way, though. I feel like the hints are where movement happens, where we do start in one place and end up in another, while everything in between is more stable and dwells in one location for a significantly longer time, which is why I, I view them as locations I, I or destinations. I that I do find them more interesting, um, but I think it's because of the free-formed nature of it. So that's, hence, what, I, that's what I mean by the their... Hence. The hence, yes. yes. Because there are, there are options there. It feels like that is the closest to the principle which we read, which of course is an extraneous quote. Don't know if that's necessarily applied to this work. But again, the principle of going with your gut instincts. It feels like the hence are more built off of instinct than the other pieces that have set forms. Well, I feel like we can get into more of the nitty-gritty of that as we progress through the record. Because right now we have a very limited view of what the hints actually are at this point. We only have had two of them. Well, my view of Hent 2 was that it was a malaise. And with the following track, Ports Gore, I felt like that was kind of the most appropriate way at the end of the day to view it. Because Port Gore, a waltz, loses a lot of the playfulness that we got that's the thing it's not as freeform this is a set piece it's it it feels more like a waltz but even that doesn't quite do it justice because i think this is a pretty good opportunity actually to talk about our favorite thing minimalism and it's just on the edge on the edge of being a little bit too simple because i describe it kind of like this like you're you're watching a waltz but there's not even people there it almost feels fake it feels I don't want to keep going back to the word hollow, but it's almost like you're watching porcelain dolls dance in this waltz. It's a very, very removed waltz. I feel more like an observer than anything else. Well, I think that comes from the kind of hint of sadness it plays on here. You know, the way the chord structures are here, you know, it flows in a way that would be, you know, a very comfortable and beautiful dance. But there is definitely this kind of hint of something else that's not quite right. And I think that plays into kind of what you're describing, Steve. Like there's a hint of sadness or emptiness here. Well, it's because it, it dwells on either a, a two, three, or four key structure in one chord, then we'll dip it down. And the dips that they usually take are towards uh, like a sad counterpart to what was previously right there. And by going from high to I, it, it does seem to always try to promote the idea that things aren't quite pretty. There's I, a little bit of a, of a marring going on. I think it's even more for a simpler reason, and that's simply, well, not just the fact that, oh, it's pure piano, right? Because, of course, it is a waltz. It's a waltz right. unequivocally. It's in 3-4, and it really does have that air to it. It can, it can be danced to somewhat solemnly, maybe. But, like, it's also because of his instinct, his primary instinct, which is not to really add clutter. Because it seems like it's what he would consider in a song like this to be clutter, whereas most composers would see that as color, you know? And it would be their natural inclination to just put a little bit more in, some more flourishes, something, some more... 
uh, substance, even though that sounds insulting, you know, some more substance to the melody. But I think that works in what you, you could call his willpower to withhold. And I think that leaves it on that edge, maybe even that uncanny valley, where it's almost just a little bit too simple when, and you're almost kind of falling asleep a little bit, right? But were it any more cluttered, then maybe it wouldn't have the character that, that I feel defines Jan Tiersen. Actually, when the higher register starts getting the similar spacing that Pern was doing, instead of Pern with its punctuation, this felt like I was more intrigued by the gaps between those notes and the the missing elements between those notes. And I, it, it it's doing a very similar thing, but the presentation is just really putting it in a in a very different mood, well, a very different spin. Well, I think yeah, it's important to focus on those gaps. Um, Especially in minimalistic pieces like this, I think more emotion, or specifically, at least for this track, there's more emotion in the gaps than there is in the actual notes. I think it's one hand washing the other, but the gaps for sure are adding the impact to the oncoming notes yeah. to give it more powerful emotion. You have more space inherently, so you might as well use it. Yeah. And probably the best brand of minimalism is that which uses the gaps best. Right, and I mean, it's it's a motif on our podcast that I yeah. often like to jump into those gaps and focus on those moments of but, silence. But I also think, you know, I have a little argument there in that sometimes I don't think he dwells enough. But granted, of course, that is what the hints are more about. Yeah. Hints, again, I think far more, they, they make use of silence. These other tracks, like for instance here, it, it is so fluid that I don't think you really have time to breathe. I mean, I know I realize that's not the, the same kinds of gaps that John was talking about. You know, it's more about just the fact that it is looser, but you don't get silence. You don't get the same silence that you actually get in in the hints. But and that's you, why they're more effective there. If, if you understand how the, the left hand and the right hand work on the piano, which is why I've kind of been saying left hand, right hand, and for some of my descriptors, I, some, I somewhat understand. It's it. it's <laughs> it's the fact in. I meant to the, I the people listening. Okay, yeah, not you. Audience. I'm assuming you know more about piano. Um, anyway, uh, it's the gaps in the right hand that I'm seeing showing up. It's the gaps in the high register. Oh, okay. Yep. And it's those specifically because sometimes they can be used with anticipation because you're expecting or enjoying or looking forward to what they're going to do next. Or sometimes, in this case, it's... You want more, and because they're not leaving you on the proper area to be happy, they're leaving you in that area that makes you sad because they're not completing that bright phrase that would make you uplifted. Instead, because the phrase is getting cut short here, it's it's a downturn. It's going uh, at the end of it because yeah. you need a little bit more to bring you back and purposely keeping it short and keeping those high phrases empty in a lot of spots does a lot to add to the depression or the malaise that's that's built in some of these tracks. And that's definitely something that this track and the non-hent tracks achieve that the hent tracks do not. I think they, because they have a little bit more motion in them, at least in the foundation, in the figuration, right? Even if the, the melody progressing slowly, as long as you have that motion, that equates to inevitability. And I don't think you have inevitability so much as hence, rather than actually taking time to to take stock and I, I and and dwell a little bit. It's not so much that you're thinking about the far-reaching implications, but that you're just focused on the moment and whatever that means for you. But motion implies inevitability. Yeah, and there's definitely more motion as we've discussed in the non-hent tracks. Moving on to track five, Lock Gwelt. This one. 
like the previous track and like Pern, does have a sense of motion, but it's a little uh, more faint here, bringing it closer to what the Hents do as far as it's, you know, it seems a little lighter, you know, but I still get the sense of passing landscape or movement. And not, maybe not necessarily like being on a train like I said earlier, but definitely some sense of motion and movement. It's it, less hollow. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, primarily because it steps away from the Walt format. It goes back into uh, a four beat instead of a three. But it's still working in that same sort of area because it has a little bit of a flamenco feel to it. It took us a little bit to actually determine it, but it's yeah. it's it's a one, two, three, one, Provided two, you three, really gussied up and maybe sped up the pace and, you know, yeah, it would, actually but, turned it into a dance, you'd have a flamenco. But setting it up with that sort of emphasis in uh, the, the mid-range, the low-range, in the rhythm section of it, it still harkens back to that waltz one, two, three setup, but it livens it up a little bit because you are a little bit quicker here because you lose a little bit of beat work. You lose a little bit of that breath. And that slight acceleration does a lot to keep the the, the dwelling nature of the previous track, but to frame it a little bit differently, just from the onset. Yeah, I don't get a sense of sadness here as much as maybe more pensiveness or just being deep within song. Yeah, it's not stuck in sadness. You're just dwelling somewhere. You're just yeah. enjoying... Well, you can dwell not, on good enjoy. thoughts or bad thoughts. Yeah, it, it, they're more neutral. It's being kind of lost in your own I, 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 yeah. Neutral is a better way to put it. Yeah. I mean, I, I do see this album... It's, it's hard to just talk about the specific track because I think this was a work that does share at least one thing in common with last week, and that is the fact that it is composed I believe from on the album scale I think that a lot of these things are very closely tied in from the beginning to the end and there's a lot of thought here placed into uh, where these tracks are the certain highs that you reach sometimes you're at the height of the sine wave in the bottom and I think here you're just somewhere in the middle and I think it's okay to just sort of float along sometimes there is not always dire consequences to anything yeah I think the only difference for me between last week and this week would be that here I'm remembering it on a track by track, you know, nature, whereas bef on, on last week's album, I kind of got lost in the shuffle. But, but that I, said... One thing that I'm, I am missing from last week, and I want to point this out now because this is the first time it starts belying that, I'm missing the moments. Last week, we had a lot of moments that we were dealing with where something would happen and it was good. Here, the track as a whole is working, but... I'm, I'm missing missing a lot of cusps. See, the difference here, is last week he's trying to derail you. Here, I think he's like he's fo so focused on instinct that maybe his own instincts we f see reflected in our own instincts as well. Yeah. So which is why everything seems to proceed logically from one moment to the next. But Locke does something and it brings in those moments because Locke goes through a, a couple of steps as the main melody that the right hand is working on starts jumping up in complexity, naturally jumping. It's not, you know, throwing you for a loop, but every time it's it starts something new or at least builds upon its old, it feels like a, a solid transition and not a different section because so much of it remains steady. This 
build of complexity just on the one hand is really starting to show the chops of how tight his finger movement really is on that right yeah hand. which is a very subtle thing also because yeah. again i feel that a lot of his music is within the capabilities of intermediate level pianists um and and that's a good thing because it also means it's broad broad scoped a yeah. lot of people can can get right on board with it but there are moments there where you realize like oh that that may take me a little bit longer to practice than i had originally anticipated sure um you get dope of that in his work where it, he, it shows that he's I think honed a specific area of skill on the piano and that is mostly control control that I feel most intermediate to even advanced level pianists do not have and going along with that there's also action you know there's the the way in which he strikes the note there's a lot of focus on that which can be kind of left in the dust if for instance you're just concerned with focusing on those other areas of the piano which are just you know playing fast or being able to do those runs of which you don't find any of that here in his work but you've got a lot of focus on, let's say, the emotion and the action of one note to the next. Even as slow paced as that is, there's, there's a lot of talent in that. Actually, he starts flaunting the control on this track. This is one of the early favorites of the album for me yeah. because the, these transitions he's going through, not only are, is he making them more complicated, but he's also still doing the shifting chords that is really the... the the Rolodex of yeah, I, ironically, I chose going. an example of the opposite thing to explain the skills <laughs> that he does in the rest of the piece, in the rest of the album. Well, yeah, he's got a little bit of his speed font, but it's it's the fact that that repetitiveness that he can build into his knuckle movements isn't just, you know, the ability to go up a key or down a key or up five or down whatever. It's that he can then start flourishing in extra ring fingers or pointers or whatnot on top of it and just integrate that into his already established control of what he's doing to the piano. He likes to make his figurations seem integrated with the piece. Like, a lot of times they can seem like a separate entity, like the something that a bass might do, be like, oh, well, that's its own thing, you know, and we take it as a separate piece. But here, it, it's not like a stride left hand where you have a melody in the right hand. A lot of times there's a lot of flow, there's a lot of integration between the two. You just kind of hear one thing at the end of the day. And that, that's a good that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also I think, like, as we move on to track six, which is Hen 3, this is going to get confusing, this is one of the really shorter ones, is only f uh, 53 seconds, you get a sense of real control here because this is where we're starting to dive into the darker stuff. Even though John initially is not inclined to agree, we had a discussion about this. For me, this song really dips into the dark, dire sadness or loss that we were hinting at in previous tracks. But I was seeing it from a very different place because the drone that's prevalent here, that really you gotta, you gotta go on about, it is throughout the piece, yeah, uh, less than a minute, but it's still a very solid sound wave built into the track. That drone, yeah, it's the desolation, it's it's the sadness, it's all the dark emotions kind of done, but it's muted, it's background. The melody, the flourishes that really are all that's, that's occurring from the piano are happier, are brighter. Uh, I would see, say I don't, I don't get that. I don't, I don't get hear that. that. But here's they the, feel, well, here's here, the here, thing. Wait, 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 wait. I agree with the word dire, but I don't believe the fact that they flourish does not equate to anything that is brighter to me. Yeah, like, I'm in kind of the same place. Like they're, but they're the direct counterparts to this drone, this background darker noise, this kind of just very steady. They are the the opposite of it, and so I can't really see it as a further association to all the other high 
bright noises that we've gotten previously. They tended to be happier. They tend to be associated with rapidity. They tend to be associated with uh, more emotional charge or coloration on top of that. I cannot separate that here. Oh, they've got emotional charge, but it's just exactly the opposite, I think, for me and Matt. I feel them to be just as dire as Matt feels them. And actually, here's, I mean, a metaphor that I think previous listeners will know I've used ad nauseum on this podcast, but I feel these... These little flourish of notes that, again, are very freeform. They feel like they're being made up on the spot. They, I feel them as being just the stray neurons of contemplation. That's what I get out of this track. And then the drone there is the weight of the world that those said neurons are encountering and having to deal with. And an additional counterpoint to what John was saying, I feel like these bright notes are the same bright notes that hint at direness or contemplation or sadness as we got in um you know the waltz earlier in Port Gray. like but, it, but, it's, it's but but it's but. similar to, i'm not done with my point so hold on to your butts <laughs> literally hold on to your butts doing so um i think that you know for me the fact that it is so opposed to the drone gives that uncertainty and gives that dire nature to me and i would just say that in Port Gray specifically we said it was the sp- Bases between the notes, not the notes themselves, and that this, were the impact. And the, here, the impact is the, the drone. Spaces between, between the, the notes, dr- but the notes themselves, the, those actual notes, give me snippets of hope compared they, to the drone. Don't that's me. where I'm coming from. Got it. Okay, and that's my argument. That and all right, I'll. I'll just leave it at this. I'm going to leave it at this. I I do not feel the same separation. You know, when I say they feel against the drone, maybe that's not the best word choice because I feel it's actually working with it. Like, they're only a byproduct of the drone. They're there because the drone is there. And actually, there's a lot of musical connectivity. Like, you hear that the drone has a tone. I do not know offhand exactly what tone it is, but it's a tone. And there's, like, the choices in the, again, free form, probably improvisation that those notes are going through, they're... They're kind of working with that. There, there is chord areas being created, but with, with not just the notes themselves, but against the drone. It's essentially what they call a pedal tone, which is something that you just sort of, if, if you would just do that in the piano, for instance, if this wasn't electronic, right, you would just create a tone at the bottom of the piano, right, like an octave, for instance, and then you could use what's called the sustenuto, the, 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 the middle pedal on the piano, and you could just keep that that tone going, right? And now you can actually play the top notes in the middle of the high register while not blurring them together, as would be blurred, for instance, if you were actually using the full-blown sustain pedal, which would blur everything all together. But that middle pedal, which is used rarely, um, which again, I'm making an analogy here, it's not that that's what's being used, because you actually have that as an electronic sound, but the principle is the same. You create a pedal tone, and then everything else is acting independently of it, meaning you don't have the blur, but it's working together with that tone at the bottom, because tones at the bottom usually dictate what chord you're on. And I think that's the principle. (laughs) But I think that's kind of what ties it together for me in the way it makes me feel. That said, moving on to track seven, Penar Roach, which is a place on this island that we've been talking about the whole time. It's actually more specifically a bike path. I believe it's on the island or or it's it's somewhere. But yeah, it's it's, It's it's within that that location, that area of the globe. And. Um, I think that the name lends itself to the track. Having the meaning sometimes for these tracks is helpful because I, this song gives me the sense of movement like the others, but I feel like it, it, 
it feels traveled and well traveled and frequently traveled. There's this kind of, I don't know, maybe some kind of resilience or um, familiarity that makes me kind of feel comfortable in where this track takes us as on the whole. I will agree that this track can I find it interesting that it actually is named after the title like the, the it's a it's a bike path and yet this is not the path track right and I more than not feel like I'm in distinct places with all again the non-hint tracks and that the hints are the paths and yet this is a path so I don't know there's just that little disparity I I think probably well, I think for me what it's all paths what makes this feel more like a path or like a uh, a line or going somewhere is because the track pretty early crests pauses for a brief moment and then moves into a roll almost like a, a a roller coaster hitting an apex or you being on a bike or a skateboard at the top of a hill and then coming down at a faster speed it doesn't really pick up that much more speed but it does get kind of fancier, more flourishing. Yeah, you yeah. described it as a, as a crest. Essentially, the note of the phrase is just like the stick. It's the last note of a phrase, and it's yeah. a staccato accent. With with Along with it, it what seems like a formata, which is where you, you just hold a note, and it's left up to, you know, performer's discretion as to how long they want to hold it. Not mm-hmm. not terribly long, but just enough that there's like, the, uh, where are we going to go? And then he begins the second phrase. Right. It's usually done by just making it louder. He seems to be getting a little bit more exuberant in hitting those keys and striking those keys. And that's something that's actually different. He's... He's he's adding a lot of energy, surprisingly, to well, just his striking patterns. It's a bike path, so you have, you know, a few more KPH going for you. <laughs> um, but when it does actually seem to get its loudest on the piece... It also seems to lose a lot of its edges as well. He seems to soften up a lot of his phrase work at the same time. So this, once we crest and hit that height, while the volume actually seems to maintain that height, the cruise downward is very blurred. And I really enjoy that descent being all blurry. I I enjoy not really being as nice and concise as the lead up was. Yeah. And also just to hammer home one more thing about that moment, because I feel I realized that we've been a little bit lacking for not necessarily lacking for moments, but maybe we feel like we're lacking for the ability to adequately discuss them because this this album is generally is so fluid and it feels like it just has to be experienced but i particularly like that moment because it really is it's a shining example of what i said before about his ability to control the action of a single note and how it and how it decays how he attacks it it's something that not every piano player can do you know even as simple as it may seem at a glance yeah and and it goes back to even what we, me and John were saying earlier, and one of the few things we agree with today, is that the spaces add a lot of dynamics to the track, and I think that this is a great track that demonstrates that in a different way than when it did earlier when John was mentioning. Yeah, instead of just the high register having pauses, there is, in fact, a bit of pause work thrown into this piece, which is a, a, a real solid surprise, but also gives you that ever so slight sharp intake of breath that yep. I, I think does a lot to allow the resolution to stand up on its own better than it, than it actually has previously in the album. Yeah, it's one of the few tracks that actually explores breath, you know, of, again, the non-hent tracks. Yes. Yeah. Well, but I, it does I, get very meandered and confused at the end. It seems like it's lost the stability that also the other non-hent tracks actually had. And I like that, 
though. I enjoy that. It's something different for the album. Well, so and far. I think it leads in really well to the next hint track. Also, I think it meandering like that is kind of and droning out yeah. allows the next hint to actually show up a little bit differently. And this is the first time it really feels like it's doing that. Yeah, because hint hint four has the previous track ends with a drone, which feels like it's been a through line in the entire track, even though we had those moments of silence. So obviously it wasn't, and then connects directly into hint four, which is track eight. Like I said, going to get confusing. And this is where you really get a sense of a bleakness and emptiness. <laughs> See, I realize we, you use, we, use, we no, may no, no, use no. the same words, but honestly, I feel this is the king of the hints. Some, it's, it's at least one of uh, my yes. favorites. I, I would agree, too, I think, because this is one of the first times you really get a sense of uh, restraint, because the phrases in this track feel incomplete. That's exactly Even if they're not, they feel it, and I think it speaks to what Steve had been saying That's earlier. That's what I was going to get to. Well, he's working in the high register once again as his primary focus. He seems to just be kind of diddling along, but that lack of commitment he's putting into the ends of these phrases is doing a lot to add a coldness to everything. Mm-hmm. But... As the piece goes along, it does lose a lot of that bleak nature. It warms up. It's still hesitant, but it goes through a bit of a shift. And you gotta, you gotta stop. It's not just bleak. It, it, it gets warm by the end. It gets a more not completed, but more satisfactory that way for me. That I don't quite feel like I'm left in the same place as when we first started with it. This one has a dynamic to it that I don't think many of the other hints really really have. I mean, I'll agree that the dynamic in this track is different. I just don't feel it get warmer. I think it kind of stays in the bleakness. I think I understand the transition and the kind of flow you're talking about, though. I think for me, it just translated to a kind of, um, what's the best way to put it? I'm trying to think. Kind of like a a disconnect or distancing almost. Like, I don't know that I necessarily feel it get What's like he's distanced from himself. Like, all right, let me go back to the the thing that you brought up. Those those phrases that are left incomplete. I mean, it's, he starts off very confidently, it seems. And you feel as if you're going to get a full melody, but he's all about broken melodies here. And in this case, it's even more broken because it starts to just deteriorate very fast. He lingers at a certain point mid-phrase he begins it with a lot of motion, and then it's like he just lost his place, and then stops and stares. And then a second later, all right, he begins it again. It's like these are all different... Almost like he's zoning out. Like he's zoning, a- zoning out, or that he's doing separate takes, you know, yeah, of, of uh, going through separate ideas, yeah. certain things that he could use. And it's interesting to get kind of a window into what you'd expect to be a completed piece. Yeah. And of course, that's how he designed it, but that's an interesting idea, which I don't often encounter. Yeah, it, it gives a uniqueness to this. I think we're all in agreement that this hint is one of the better ones and also one of the most unique ones. And it completely deteriorates at the end because yeah. then at some point it doesn't even feel like he's even beginning phrases at all. Yeah. It, it kind of devolves to the position of the previous hence, where it is just this freeform reandering position. I would like to go into one little aside and talk about just a minute. The word bleak. Oh, wait. I've been using <laughs> it, we've been using it a lot. Okay. Uh, I've been using it as a point of view as far as setting is concerned. Are you using it from that same spot, or are you talking more emotionally? I mean, I was kind of saying both. I mean, Because when I'm using it, I mean from a setting, from a visualization. And what this track does with 
the the bright edges that are on top of the drone, or even when the uh, the birds come in to start adding extra little sound bites on top of everything else or in between everything else. As it starts to deteriorate, this bleakness, I feel like, does get upset. I feel like this, uh, the, the randomness that seems to be appearing and the fact that, yeah, we're not even getting the illusion of a melody anymore. Instead, it's just sharp and bright. That's adding a lot of color that I'm not really seeing in the bleak landscape, in the very muted gray kind of landscape that this drone propagates. That's where I'm coming from from this. That's where I see a lot of... Not not hope, but maybe a breath of life being thrown into this piece. And I and I guess that gives you more clarity. But I am mostly speaking strictly emotional on this album. As that's a why whole. that's why I wanted to go into as, this. As a whole, I'm I'm using bleak because I'm pairing it with dire and sad and awful. You know, I'm exaggerating awful. a little bit, but like <laughs> I'm going I'm, through the the thesaurus essentially. Uh, yeah, I'm pairing it with some darker kind of uh, emotional things, and so I think that's where the disconnect is, but we're both kind of technically right. What's interesting about how this track devolves and then we go into track nine, uh, Carry On, is that we get probably, at least up until this point, one of the fastest paced tracks on the album. And it has, it, it brings in even more of that punk mentality here because I think stylistically, the way he's kind of playing frantically is a spiritual kind of connection to punk with piano, I feel like. And this is one of my favorite pairings um, of an introduction into a, the full piece because it's almost like he finally figured out what the melody's going to be. The hesitation's gone. The the idea of being, you know, non-committal is completely gone. He's just going full force right now. He discovered the idea he was searching for well, in the previous piece. It depends what you visualize as melody. I mean, yeah, here there is... I think there's something that most of the books would probably agree on is a melody, but it also feels so even, so tight uh, with that... Like, you still feel this track in four, but yeah. you feel that, that eight count, right? Mm -hmm. That That's the pattern here. Mostly you feel it every single eighth note, right? And it's a very interesting pattern. But it's still not... I think independent enough for me to consider it a melody, but of course all this stuff is like, once you get into the territory of minimalism, then this stuff gets really, really hairy as to yeah. what's a melody, what's not. But I still do feel that, uh, going back to what John was saying earlier, I think he more focuses on um, on color and, of course, figuration than he does on melody. I'm yeah. not saying like melody is nowhere in the album. There are definitely pieces that yes. have a lot of melody to them and that they're very distinct, but that I think it's more about the color, and he derives more emotional weight from color and figuration, the kinds of things that actually have launched entire genres, like, for instance, post-rock, right? Things that we wouldn't even genreify if it weren't for the expansion of those other tools, and right. not necessarily melody. Like, that's the one element that kind of stagnates in those other genres. Actually, it's a big of coloration in this. His phrases start... I, I want to say odd, though they work so well, with a little bit of an off-key. It, it's not actually off. We're not really uh, changing up the scale too much, uh, depending on what chord he's sitting in. But he is starting on a little bit of a sour note over and over and over again. But he sort of explains away that note by the end of each phrase. And I'm loving the way he's doing that right here, because this sort of idea shows up in the reverse later on, and it's 
it's some of the my favorite work that he does because just starting a little bit lower on the register than you just would come to expect before or picking a up higher, to the beginning of or the picking phrase. it back up in yep. the phrase like being able to sort of belie one little aspect keeps keeps that 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 undercurrent of unhappiness that seems to be permeating so much of this album or the undercurrent of I, not really unhappiness just a lack of enthusiasm well, that seems to be going on. Well, I, I, I think it's even more uncertainty and just not a clear path, if you will, to what the future holds. I think there's a lot of, you know, cloudiness. You know, it's being obscured. I think in this track, there's this kind of frantic intensity to kind of get through that cloud, get to the other side. And that movement that you feel... Uh, kind of is accentuated by the tail end of the track, which slows to a point of like you feel like almost an exhaustion after that frantic burst of energy. There is an exhaustion, but just back to what you're saying before, if you were to bring to mind like the aimless or uncertain nature of this piece, uh-huh. um, weird comment I have on that. First of all, hopefully I can, this is the last time I have to say the phrase non-hent tracks, <laughs> but for all of those tracks, right, they're they in general have a lot more certainty to me and it goes back to probably something that we've neglected to mention in a while because there's a lot of interesting th- things to say about Jan Pearson's work from piece to piece and especially if it's the time we have a, a hint track then this is not even an entity but remember there's still a lot of repetition here yeah. and there's repetition That's in true. like the the every four measure or so you know structure mm-hmm. within that he still has this tendency to kind of just put you really put you in this one chord no matter how it's broken up and in this case it's very broken up because of the fast paced nature of it right he has this flourish but it's all built around one chord and he stays on that for about four measures and then boom pulse we have another chord right he stays in that for about four measures right so until you're completely accustomed to it maybe even longer than one would want to be accustomed to it from like a a composer standpoint they might like things to progress a little bit more naturally or a little bit more uh rapidly from one moment, or even subtly from one moment to the next, because here, it's it's not always so subtle, you know, you hear that next chord, and it's like, oh, we're here now, right, and then we're here now, and that's where I'm going to bring this around to agreeing that there is a meandering quality, still an uncertain quality to the overall arc of the piece, if you analyze the chord structure in the broad, but in a given moment, there's a lot of stability. Yes, I'm speaking from an emotional uncertainty, not a uh, not that the composer was uncertain when he wrote it. Like I guess the two are kind of equated to me. Like I don't uh, again. All right, I have to say it again. I'm gonna keep on saying it. The non-hen tracks, right? right? There's like they're nothing in degrees of uncertainty compared to the hence. Sure. That's why I don't even really consider the term when I hear a track like this. I actually hear more of like, oh, all right, this is this is interesting. This is interesting piano work. Because he hasn't, you know, had something with this much motion yet. Yeah, I guess, again, I'm coming from a very emotional place with most of this record. So that's where my mind lends. But I understand what you're saying. Well, music is an emotional thing. Well, yes. As we've said many times. Especially this. But I think also, for me, like, I've not gotten such a unique range within a specific set of emotions from one instrument before. Because we're not wildly in different emotional places. Welcome to the world of the piano. Right. But, took you long enough. <laughs> but, but, but so, like, all right. So I think from here we can safely move on to Hent 5, track 10. Still confusing. No, it's not. I know. No, no, you're confused. You're confused. Not confused. Um, what but, we have here, I want to take lead on this one because I know you're going to argue with me on it. 
we have five very singular, four or five, very singular piano strikes. These keys are just hit. They ring out. And then they... Same s- note, too. Same note. Then it starts to divide. The, then we get uh, additional little off-putting, off-setting, little divides. They're it not quite slowly in build. Terms. It feels as yeah. if they've just stepped apart. Uh, let's say stepped apart. Oh, a half step because they yeah. did right. Yeah, yeah. And, then and what a you full hear, step. well, except in not like a minor second in terms of rather the octave that he really has a tendency to use in the majority of of his pieces. Well, here it, the octave has shifted just to that major seventh, right? Just one half step short of creating a nice full consonant octave. So of course, get that major seventh interval, and it is fairly dissonant. It is extremely harsh because it is just not resolving, and you don't have any of the other tones there to create the chord, the full blown major seventh chord, or any of that, it's just the interval itself, very cold, very separate. And then he makes it even more separate because then he adds another note at the top, and that note is the tritone. That would be the tritone again relative to D. If this were the uh, a, a D plus a major seventh interval above D, well now we're adding the tritone at the top. So it's it, a lot of things that honestly aren't meant to sound perfect when played together. Yeah, but it's for me about as removed as you could get from anything consonant. The way they just keep hammering home their own ideas and changing their actual time spacing between one another, because they get closer and further and closer and further. This yeah, that this in many evolution? ways is the more interesting thing than really just the notes themselves. Yeah. The notes are obviously disconcerting and they're fundamentally disconcerting, right? But, but it's this, the time. This change in the timing really does a lot to sort of open up and and beautify that initial key, that initial note. To hear that and to hear with something that's supposed to contrast with it but just keeps swirling around it and conforming to it because it doesn't miss its strikes – I, I found it to be like a, a blossoming of just that idea. And what's interesting is I had the opposite kind of – uh, feeling towards this track, for me, it it represents the slow breakdown of something, as if something were dying or decaying. You know, you know that you have this specific note representing the evenness of the status quo, and then it starts to fall apart. These disconcerting off notes. Well, I'm there. Rep- you know, are 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 representing this breakdown. So like, yeah, bits and pieces falling, falling along off. As, it's, as it's being played. Yet... Musical water torture. <laughs> uh, for, me, for me, I understand that, but the fact that the, the, the singular note, it was, it was a D? Uh, I believe in the beginning, yes. Did not change. It did not change its pacing. Did not, it did not allow anything else to affect it. So it's almost like each individual note to me was just uh, the further unfurling of what that D represented. And for me, that constant D represented the status quo before shit goes wrong, essentially. And, that and was, then it yeah. decays and falls apart. Status quo is a relative thing. I feel right. it's status quo compared to the way I've visualized the other hint tracks up right. till now, and that is a kind of rumination. You're sitting, you're staring, and things were already bad. Yeah. They were already this, like... Called reality. I almost don't see the other tracks as reality. I see them as fanciful worlds. Some of them, you know, having their own unique qualities that aren't always some more positive than others. Some are just kind of there. They're neutral bodies. But yet, the hint is reality. That's... Maybe someone would go toward this the exact opposite way. I could see that, you know? Whereas, this is the cold story and all those other things are 
reality, the things you might see on a daily basis. Something externalized versus internalized. Yeah. I guess this is, I don't know, it depends on your emotional state at any given moment, right? <laughs> but the hints, uh, they send me down a, a, a dark route, and I would in general feel that that's reality crashing down upon you. So for me, this was an exaggeration of that. Right, you feel that that the, the spacing of those opening notes, which are the same thing over and over again, the more reduced, the more minimal it gets. It exaggerates just how much you really are overthinking. So the way you're describing it, uh, format-wise, like the kind of uh, reality versus fantasy, I don't really get that, but I'm getting the same emotional output from it that you are... Well, the point I was just making was specifically just with respect to the other hand tracks. Right. Right? Right. Well, and that I completely agree Yeah, with. it has to be looked at as a parallel theme here. Yeah, you know, for like sure. They're all connected. No, right. And I agree that this is... This decay, for me... Is, is an example of how the hence kind of change and evolve, especially as we go forward on the record. And this is not like the ones that came before it. And here's, here's where things... Ah, I just can't see your destruction while I'm seeing the creation in Hent 5. Because in Yuzin, it's it feels like it was the core concept of what Hent 5 was trying to create, just fully realized, like fully built upwards... And I just don't see any of that decay that you seem to see was present in using. See, and I do because, well, I don't. But there's a reason for that. Because using is supposed to represent, to me, this kind of mental escape or lamenting on the previous decay that happened, whatever it was. And here you're kind of sitting with that and we're back to kind of a ruminating, like yeah. Steve was saying earlier. It's definitely on the darker side of, of tracks that would follow a hint. Um, but I, I still, there's things that I enjoyed in this, things that kind of, I don't know, lifted me up a little bit that were playful enough. Like, for sure. instance, there's those two, two notes that always hammer home almost every, again, it's usually pretty cyclical, so it's usually every, like, four measures or so, um, or even less, and then you hear just this 5-4, five, 5-4, four, five, four, right? And it's... All right, I guess it could be a little... Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's just nothing. But it's like, it's the, it's the standout-ish moment of this track. And then later on, he, he changes the chord, and he'll do the same thing equivalently with a different chord. But it, it, it stands out like a sore thumb, and it almost becomes endearing after a while. I could see that. I, I think also, at the 10,000-foot view, the track as a whole is standout on the record because it's the first time... Like, we've had an ABA before, but here we... we It's very cyclical. It's, it's ABA, ABA, ABA. It's not ABA. cyclical, it's oscillating. Between oscillating, the two. yes. Until the end in which it really seems to be favoring A. And yeah. like, not the only that, just drags it, that it out. actually changes A. Yeah. Because kind of, once we get our first movement of A and then our first movement of B, they don't change. Now, for that, for that repetition and the fact that the repetition of you really have two even measures and then two measures of color and then two even measures, even within the A's and the B's, I really found this to be quite beautiful because just the work that seems to be going into it and really like his skill and tightness with his fingers that he's working with right now seems to be really hitting their stride and their high point here more than anywhere else on the album. It's also doing something that I really liked back in Carrion. It's having a little bit of note work uh, just off-putting, but instead of really like starting phrases, it seems to be on the tail end of those phrases. Uh repeating a note that's about to come back in or doing something like that. Something just to put you a little bit off and to still give a lie to a lot of the beauty he's building. Yeah. All said and done, the speed that he's playing this at 
the fact that it really just is hammering home two different sections, but it's doing it quick enough between the two that I'm not getting tired of one, uh, makes it one of my favorite tracks on the album. It's it's interesting because uh, it's not one of my favorites, but it's a standoutish track. Yeah, for sure. I thought I felt it was a satisfying track. I think that's, that's actually a good way of probably, putting it. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably something that I don't think I've gotten yet on the album. I don't think I've been truly satisfied, which is why I keep wanting would, the next piece of I, the album. I would say even satiated. I think this track satiated me. You know, it, it, there's an appetite for certain things on this album, and I feel like this track was the most filling of them. Uh, you know what? That probably comes just from the fact that he kept he kept going back and forth. Yeah. And on it, I would have liked a lot more of that maybe with some of the other sections that came beforehand because some of the other pieces he's done, uh, when he's going back and forth from A to B, A to B, the fact that we're kind of getting overexposed here was probably a good thing. Yeah, I would ag- I would agree with that for sure. Let's go to track twelve, Roch Arvu. So, oh, I think that. What continues to prove, not necessarily prove, because it's not right or wrong, but continues to perpetuate my emotional state for this record is this next track, because we're back to a kind of slower piano playstyle, which I feels like really reinforces the lamenting kind of deep in thought this feeling is, I had. This is where I agree with you, like pretty un, unequivocally. This this track, as again next to the, it stands up with the hence, but yeah. it has to do with the chords themselves because mm-hmm. it's not as it's not as barren, but it has like it has more going on from moment to moment. But here it just takes the cake in terms of the weight of the chord progressions themselves. I mean, this brought me back to some specific things, uh, things that I, I realized moved me in retrospect. Like I, it immediately brought me back to uh, the end credits in. In ET, I, I thought about that. I was actually un, even unsure as to what I was thinking of, but there was something about well, we all got about, that familiarity. Yeah, there like, was something it, it about the way the us. way the the piano was was kind of rolling together and each individual chord itself that just brought me back to that. And I had to scan through. It was like, yep, that's what it is, and it sits with you for obviously many years because I was very young when I saw that movie. I actually haven't seen it very uh, recently, but I remember there's a lot of things stirring through your head. You know, by the time uh, ET finally up and goes and that's it the movie's kind of over and then it's just this flash straight to the credits and it just begins with this sort of rapidly evolving piano style but the one and thing it was we, very moving to me even then well yeah and what the one thing we all said now is when you found that piece and played it for us we all went oh and immediately remembered it and remembered the emotion connected to it yeah that i think comes from the fact that it feels kind of blurry blurrier than normal in the beginning it it the the low end is changing a lot more than I've come to expect from his work. The high end feels like it's more complicated and even brighter than normal. It, this, the back and forth between the two, uh, he's really not doing more than shift the chords on top of that. But the fact that the two pieces, the two hands really, for once, don't seem to be playing as as in tandem as I, as I expect, did a lot to make them feel individualistic. Like I said, this is a piece where, to me, it does come down to the chords very, very heavily. Mm-hmm. I think um, that even as, as all the nice things that I have to say about this artist, you know, in various other areas of this album, this may be what I really wanted most. But granted, of course, I accept this is only really a part of his story. Yeah. But there's something that is 
a lot more passionate here. You know, the, one of the problems that I do have throughout this album is that there is a removed nature to some of this. In many ways, uh, an analogous to the same thing that I was experiencing back earlier on, like with, with track four, Pours Gore, and I felt how it was sort of its own, it had its own hollowness and that it felt like it's porcelain figures standing around. That's kind of been true for much of this album. The funny thing is even though uh, the hint tracks are, are in stark contrast to that. They they definitely juxtapose that. They don't really do much to take me somewhere completely different because they're not flushed out enough to be anything beyond a semblance of an emotion. But here we have a full piece, and it's a full piece with passion and detail. And that, I think, is very important to me at this stage in the album. And I, I wish it encompassed more tracks, a larger variety of them. I was also really impressed with the way this track in particular ended because we were talking about, or at least I was talking about, how blurry everything was because of how rapid everything was. Yeah. And when it starts to lose that blur, starts to soften and fall apart and actually really degrade and ends in near silence on top of everything, that was one of the first times we really got a, a sense of finale. Well, not, in a piece. not near silence. That's not the way, quite the way to put it. I would put it as it ends with a very dry mix. Like the blur, as you hear earlier, definitely, you know, kind of it, it blends everything together. It's a blur. I would. It's almost like a constant sustain pedal. Almost. Um, that's the effect that you get. But then suddenly at the end, you feel that it's just the piano with relatively no special mix to it. It's just kind of flat. It's in a room. You know, a very kind of bland recording but that bland recording actually carries a lot of weight when you consider that you've just kind of been in this whirlwind for much of the track it so i think it was asleep. pretty to me it was a great way to put to bed a lot of the energy that that we were just getting thrown at us with this piece yeah and to me that is very typical actually of again what he's done so far or what i've seen in in i guess my interpretation of what he's done the idea of of juxtaposing reality and and Fantasy, or perhaps how you'd want things to be, or how things seem to be, and very often maybe the reality is is, is duller, <laughs> or it could be the opposite for various people. Who knows? Sure. Um, going on to track thirteen, which is another hint, hint six. Um, this is also another brief one. This one's only forty-two seconds. This one, I think, is the first time that one of the hint tracks. If any of them could, this could be construed as an interlude. It's not really, but it's definitely lighter and airier, which kind of gives the sense of connectivity between 12 and 14. I'll say it flat out. This is an ambient piece. Yeah. It actually is emotionless. Like, like I will say, like, straight up, it feels emotionless. It just feels, feels like, like a space and time. Exactly. And that's... Or even a moment in time. I've gotten that before on lot, a lot of these pieces, on a lot of these Like, moment to moment, yeah. Just, like, if it doesn't feel like it's charged emotion or it's relying heavily on being a mood setter as opposed to a setting setter. But this really is all setting. And it feels like... We're uh, we're really uh, embracing the previous ending's dreamscape and going to somewhere else where we're going to wake up from it. And that's what we get in the next track, Penerlan. Yeah, I mean, we were going back to kind of this waltz feel that we had had earlier um, that we talked about at length. Um, but here, this time, I don't get a hint of sadness. Here, yeah. there's there's this, this kind of breath of life in it, this kind of uplifting, unbridled joy that we really haven't gotten, I think, anywhere on the record. Yeah, not at all, really. There's, no, there's none of that sadness. It's, um... 
Not even like in the background. No. And the funny thing is, I, I really want to. I visualize this this piece again in the greater whole. I think this mm -hmm. is why it's not good really to break up Jan Tiersen's music. I'm sure it can. I'm sure it has individual value from track to track, but it is pretty interesting when you consider the wave, the up and down wave that's been this album. We went toward yeah. these really really dark spells, and then just with the last track with Hence Six, we we entered an, a kind of a neutral zone where I. Not to repeat ourselves from last week, but it's peaceful, and I would pretty much leave it at that. Peaceful, it's yeah. very neutral. And then here we've we're picking it up again, and we're going to actually more of a light and almost blissful. I would even call it borderline romantic in how yeah, he approaches sure. some of these chords, some of the, the some of the rounds. And then it it just feels more generally uplifting after the pedal is applied in the B section and starts blurring those notes together. Well, there's a lot of youthful energy, I think, infusing this Exuberance, piece. even. Yeah, that, that we're missing out on in a lot of the other stuff. The other ones are weighted, and they seem to have a little bit of age to them. This really does feel like it's a young idea. It's a very new idea. Well, And it, I think that's... Also because we're getting a little bit of that uh, flamenco idea that was back in uh, track five, Lock Geltz, showing up here again. That same sort of repetition of a three count, three count, two count on top of the waltz. And the, the combination of the two really does a lot to take that three count of the waltz, the three, four, and keep it from becoming as dirgy as it was back in track four. Well, because they're also, while they're working in tandem, they're building off each other, too, because this has a, this track has a rise to it. A lot of rise in the chords. Yeah, and, and it, it climbs pretty quickly, too. I just, I, I again, I want to go back to the emotion of the track because I just feel like we haven't felt like this at any point. Regardless of what you're feeling here, whether it's the same as what I'm feeling or not, I think we can all agree that it's unlike anything we had gotten so far. And it's I, a lot more, like, solidly formed it's in some ways. And it's crisper, too. I feel like there's a clarity here that, like, the fog that I'd mentioned quite a bit in earlier tracks is lifted here. And I think that that stark difference from the previous tracks is what gives this tracks so much character and I think makes me like it so much. You know, again, if you visualize the island that we described earlier, maybe we shouldn't be going so much toward these heavy, like, emotional uh, imagery. Well, it's not even imagery at that point. We're talking about what we're feeling here, yeah. but maybe it should be imagery. Maybe it should be just straight-up landscape imagery, in which case maybe you just got to the top of the mountain and suddenly the sun is out and it's a really, really nice day yeah. and or, the island doesn't nearly look so bleak as it did before. Or maybe this is more like a brand-new garden flourishing during the middle of spring, something like that. There's there's a vibrancy here that really is missing. And, it's, and we speak as if we've been there. We yeah, don't know. We have <laughs> no idea. We don't know. But uh, it also is showcasing a lot of the skill and control he has in his right hand once again. This is some of the tightest high register stuff that he does on the entire album. And it really is what uh, I I'm thoroughly enjoying. But at the same time, it's also showcasing that he's starting to become a little bit samey in his delivery. Uh, let me explain. His left hand, his lower mid-range register, the way he's setting up his rhythm work with the piano is doing a lot of the same ideas over and over again. The flourishes are different. The actual repetition isn't there, but they feel like they're trying to hit the same notes. His right hand is the exposition hand. It's, it's the brighter levels. It's the statements that we get, and it's the statements contrasting against the left hand that is creating these emotions and these visualizations that we're coming up with. But I'm starting to get a little bit tired 
tired of it being so conformed to make the right hand play off the left hand. And that's what I feel like it might be turning into. Well, I do think that argument is a bit, for me, a bit of an extension from the thing that I just explained uh, in a couple tracks ago, and that is the thing about the passion, the brief introduction of passion. And now I feel that even though I may have said romance a second ago, that is not necessarily passion. I feel it's still, it, it has been removed a bit. Like, it is generally nice and, and light and blissful, and there's a lot of character here, but it's not the same level as where he was at. Again, it's just another stage in his in life, perhaps, or on the path. Well, I think, like, attaching to your kind of romantic idea, I feel it might be a more clinical view of romance. Like a textbook view of romance, as opposed to a passionate, in-depth okay view of romance. It's okay to just have a sweet day you right. know, with someone. But that said, I think... You know, we don't stay out of that darkness or the kind of hint of bleakness for very long because this track ends with more ambient kind of drone and cawing. I'm guessing it's crows, but it's crows, can't. ravens. It's just that kind that of way. thing, yeah. which of course are often uh, uh, um, attached to omens. Yeah. But Harbi- then harbingers, harbingers, if you will. yes. And then track 15, <laughs> hence seven. Those calling crows continue as we go and give way into, uh, you know, again, a very heavy kind of bleak piano work. But here, the difference is this piano work, when we focus in on the chords, we're getting much deeper, darker notes that even rumble and carry out. Steve was talking about the sustain pedal, and here he's really letting those heavy, deep notes rumble for a little bit. Yeah. But for that, I'm not really getting emotionally connected to that in a dark way. This feels still, while the depth is there, I'm not going to refute that. That's It's impossible to refute. I feel like this is more like maybe a thunderstorm or something of that sort, something that is not personal in that way, but it's obvious that it's going to be cold. It's obvious that it's going to be uncomfortable, but not something that is from an emotional place, just really actually more of a physical place. Well, I think that's kind of the difference between you and I, at least, on this record, I think, is you're going to more of a landscape kind of, you know, place, whereas me, I'm bringing this album inward more, and I think that's kind of where the um, separation is for us. Here. It's it's almost like you were enjoying Norman Rockwell and I'm enjoying Bob Ross. I guess. Well, to a point, but I think it's also more that I'm... Steve said before, any emotion that we're getting from these pieces, from this album, is us imprinting ourselves on it. It's not necessarily an emotional piece, but I'm deriving emotion from it by personalizing it to me. And I don't see anything wrong with that, but I think that's where the big separation is. I've mentioned it a couple times uh, on this podcast that impressionism kind of gets that uh, perhaps false ascription. Yeah. Like the idea that impressionism, all right, you you want to imprint your, your own thing onto it, but very often, you know, people that we call impressionist composers, well, all right, the king among them was Debussy, and Debussy hated the term impressionism, right. because a lot of times he had very specific things in mind. Either that, or he he either had something very specific in mind, or he wanted to keep it open enough that why should it necessarily be any more or less impressionistic than other great composers? Sure. You know? It's just what people have felt, and after a while, people just kind of go with their gut with it. Oh, yeah, it's impressionism. Yeah, sure, whatever. (laughs) But, and yeah, then whenever we end up doing this, then we would call it impressionistic. But that's purely personal. But, But back to track 15, I think that 
I'm I, the reason I'm in that place is because of how I'm describing the album to me. That said, though, I love that he goes to these deep tones here because we haven't really l- heard him ring out in that register much they, on the record. They haven't stood out as individuals yeah. as much. They've been brief moments, but here he really rides them and hones them here. And it's again of, the willpower that Steve said before. There is a sense of holding back here and letting certain things ring through. And there are things within this, by the way, that you know bring to mind why I actually brought up Impressionism and Debussy, because some of them, especially in those lower tones, they bring me back to certain specific pieces of the era. You know, I don't know if that's a straight-up inspiration, or maybe it's just coincidental. Some of that is a little bit intuitive on the piano, and Debussy himself was going with his own intuitions, mm-hmm. and it was very often to make u- wide use of the the piano from the extreme low end to the extreme high end, and he'd have these long drone pedal tones, and you know, it, it's it's in that culture, and I think maybe at some point in the podcast we should at least say, hey, if you like that stuff, you may really like Jan Tiersen. Right. It's a it's a good pitch to make. Let's go to track sixteen, Enes nine. So. <laughs> This is the first track, I think, on the album that I had less to say about because while it wasn't a problem for me, the thing that John was describing earlier is is getting a little apparent here as far as we have more rolling piano, the Rolodex, as Steve mentioned, you know, this is a little more upbeat and sweet. I think that I am so enraptured in the record that it's not necessarily a problem for me, but I could see how someone might feel like he's repeating on himself. And actually, there comes a point in your overall experience of these waves of emotion mm-hmm. on an album where you do wonder, y- you try to find a logic within it. Yeah. You know, and maybe there is no logic, and that's the moral, and that's all well and good. But, oh boy, do we like to have such tightly packed stories, right? Right. Where if this was, for instance, even a much simpler and easy to understand arc that was, in general, we're going to be at peace in the beginning, we're going to be neutral, and then we're going to get dark and we're going to return to neutral, we could understand that and we could just say, yeah, 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 I get it. I've, I've, you could equate that to anything and it would be just that simple. And also that could apply to a more complex arc where, for instance, even if you had just the barest of uh, dialogue to go off of, for instance, maybe if, uh, oh, it's just a shame because we don't understand the poetry that is happening in the very first track of the album and the very end maybe could provide some insight. We're not entirely sure. But if you had just a little something to go off of, then you might be filling out a deeper story. And then we'd understand that arc. But here, I just kind of see we get darker, we go neutral. We get light, we go darker, we go neutral, we get light. Not necessarily in that order. And I'm not finding the sense at it at this point. It seemed to make sense around track 10. I find it's making less sense now here toward the very end. Well, I think... For me, that's not a problem because if you take like the old adage of following your heart instead of following your head, yeah. logic does not apply. It doesn't apply. And no. so I think that the lack of logic here is less of a problem for me because I'm, for lack of a better term, following my heart. It's like well, you, we, it's just, we've been down that route before, sure. right? And so it's familiar, um, which would not be surprising in terms of life, you know, to have right. the same problems, right? But yet this is an album, and you you want to. You want to think that there is original statements being said. That right. may not be the case. Right. And that's what's actually really bothering me with this track, is that I don't find, for the album, originality going on. Like, it, it as as Thorm said, it came up earlier, but now it really is kind of on the nose for me that there's no original style choices going on right here. I That's that said, that, that is a... 
you know, a disclaimer, I find this track to be solid by itself, which is weird because I still don't want to remove it from the context of the arc. But by itself, if you look at it by itself, it stands up against everything else. I don't know if we're going to jumble stuff around or anything like that. I don't know if you really can jumble stuff around on this album, but setting this up with a slightly different framework could have done a lot I guess to make this particular piece stand out and be a solid beginning to the album, yet I could say that about many of the pieces here. Well, let me say one thing about originality since you brought it up. I realize we, again, another Crash Chords faux pas, you say originality and there's an implication there that, oh, I'm just going to ignore what's out there, right, and stagnate essentially, whether it's with respect to your own music or with respect to other stuff. But, of course, this is why sometimes it defeats the purpose, actually, to recite quotes in the beginning of the album. But in this case, it it actually kind of helps a little bit. Like, all right, this is a guy who really composes from the heart. It sounds like there's really not a lot of considerate, like, not active consideration about what else is out there when he is just going through the motions. This is meant to be, I guess, in its own vacuum, really. And so then when you say the word originality, it, it's, it's besides the point. Of course it's original. It's his work, and it came straight from his mind. Um, I, 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 that makes me wonder what exactly we're looking for. Like, what do we want? I don't know. What do you want? Uh, that's a very difficult question to ask. What do I want from this artist or in general? This artist. I mean, I think I'm getting what I want, as far as I'm concerned. From this artist, I want... Experimentation is the wrong word. I, like I just this... want some... I want him to, to be more mutable in just his style choices, I guess. At this point of the album, I understand what he is extremely good at. And he is extremely good at it. But I want him to break outside the box he's sort of kind of painting himself into right now. Okay. No, that's a better way to put it. Because mm-hmm. it, it would seem to be that that is noticeable to someone after they sit with an artist for this duration. Um, like, for, as we're... much as you may enjoy it. And I do yeah. really, really enjoy this. Like, as kind of, a, I'll admit it, as kind of a background thing. But it, it, that's, that's to its credit, because it will absolutely set a mood. Um, whether I can do this in an active state, though, by track 16 is a matter of... It depends. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think we're putting the cart before the horse a little bit because we're not even at the end of the album yet. True. But, you know, time to start having these discussions. Sure. Track so, 17, Cataran. So, remember before when I said we had a fast-paced track? Well, that's the second fastest track because this is by far the fastest and kind of most lively track on the record because it's just kind of everywhere he starts babbling like his fingers start babbling on on the board here and i love what he's doing with that let me say this this is a lot to re-energize me for what's going on well everything let me just say this everything i just said put it over here yeah (laughs) put it put it aside because yes this is not really his style like it's not something that i would that would scream out to me jan tiersen now having known his his work for for long enough. This is a skill level that is actually unsurpassed on this album. Just in terms of skill and raw pianistic ability, this 
shows that he has chops that, again, you are not as easy to see in other tracks. And I'm seeing that with the way he combines his emphasis, the way he's hammering certain keys at certain points throughout this piece. He's going a little balls to the wall on it, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, it's not even like it's he's going to keep hitting on the one or keep hitting on the two or keep hitting on the three and or yeah. something like that. You he's, don't have those he's big mixing measure dividers. going for it and he he's still got the repetition down. yeah it's still I, I, paced that way kind of but but the way he's just emphasizing certain aspects of each measure slightly differently as we go along with this journey of this piece uh it, it's doing a lot to really take that energy that's already being infused in the speed and making it translatable to the emotion that he's putting in. Yeah, because I think it has to do with the fact that when you when you have a piece that is uh, more of one thing, you know, but less of another, then it means you may be inclined to expect that something else, a third thing, is flushed out a little bit more. You know, just this little, like, just pie chart of, of things that we'd like to make our music feel full and mm-hmm. feel... Fluid. It doesn't necessarily mean that each and everything has to be top of the charts. But, like, for instance, since in general in this album, his rhythms seem to be very tight, very direct and to the point, you know, uh, I think that there's just this desire to want maybe that extra thing. And in this case, he... he the talent, just showing, showing off, showing off on the piano. I think it really does make up for some of those things. If they weren't... If it, the, what he had was not doing it for you before. Yeah, I mean, I think track 17 is a little long to wait for that. And if you weren't enjoying it up, you know, earlier, you wouldn't make it to this point. But then if but, it's also about enjoying the art of it up right. to this point. So then it's a final little way of kind of just like just passing his middle finger at the side. Be like, hey, you didn't think I could do this? Ha <laughs> ha, I can. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think more so for this, it, it it's kind of also a good transition piece to the final hint, which we'll get to in a minute. I think that you needed something with this kind of energy considering what we're going to get because you know this does while the last fast-paced track felt kind of frantic and almost intense and lost this feels more directed there's a, a, an energy but it's a focused energy here it, it it is and i think that's in respect to what you're saying about kind of showing off it's definitely directional it's 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 actually technical and, yeah and that's something and again other other tracks here exhibit control and fluidity and this he, exhibits technicality yeah and a lack of willpower i think it's the first time he lets the willpower go and just goes for it true and but that said, when we go to track eighteen, the final hint, hint eight, it's the exact opposite of what we were getting. Well, uh, it's mm, it actually is kind of sampling everything we were getting with the previous well, hint. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's the exact opposite of the immediately previous track. And I think that was where it should be like lauded that it is the final track on this album because it's a six minute plus track. It's Sort of uh, explaining what I'm seeing as the path journey, the hint journey that well, we've like been an, on. It feels the, like a the hint, hint. The henceforth, as it were. Uh, <laughs> it feels like a hint overture almost. Hint yes. Eight. Like, because it is pulling from 
And it feels almost like an album overture too, because there are in notes and minor moments reflecting on things that we've gotten throughout, I feel. But it's definitely a direct homage or acknowledgement to the previous hints for sure. There does come a point and partially felt it in this hint. I also maybe felt it in other hints. <laughs> hence backward. <laughs> and that is the fact that these um these hints, they maybe at some point we've exhausted the discussion. Yeah. Like there, we've said a lot, I've said a lot about the hence, but there's there comes a point where you just said it all, where it's like, all right, we're going to use the same terms. We're going to say bleak. We're going to say downtrodden. We're going to say um, free form and everything that applies to that particular set of tracks on this album. And now's a good as time to say it as any other, since I've, I've held off saying that for some of the other tracks yeah. entitled hint. Right, and I think also... The thing that defines this from the others, even though we have kind of said all that there is to say, is that this one, because of its length, feels like it takes its time. Not that any of the other ones felt rushed, but like I think this really lets you steep in what he was trying to do. Whereas the other ones were on the shorter side for the most part, you know, anywhere between three minutes or less, more, you know, for most of them. This, you kind of really can bask in what he's done in all of these paths. And now I'm going to start throwing out imagery because, and I guess this might be a place unless somebody has somebody else to say about Hent 8. I'll just go into our wrap-up. Go for Question? it. Question? Comment? Go. Okay. Hent Take 8. Take the path. There we go. <laughs> and that's actually where I'm going to start. Hent 8 is the journey home. Because I really distinctly see the, the, the duality of this album. The journeys and the destinations. The hints are these journeys. They get you from point A to point B because they are allowed to change themselves up and get outside of a lot of the norm A, B systems that are built in everything else. So these paths that we go on, these trails really do a lot to allow anything on this album to exist kind of by itself as sort of not separate acts but at separate places to really have an identity of their own this way he broke them up with eight real distinct pseudo interludes i'm not going to call them interludes they're not interludes they're really pivotal with these eight introductions and expositions of these locations did a lot to make a lot of the sameness in his style choices not be there. Just distinctly not be there. That it took 17, 16 tracks for me to really start going, all right, you're great with your right hand on the high end of being very punctuated and to be very rapid. And your left hand, your low register, your medium register, it's it's very refined and your rhythm section is very, very solid. But you don't have too much more than that. Well, no, that's that's not true. The hints show that he has more. He has a statement to this minimalism that really isn't just minimalism. It applies so much more being built into it. That said, my detractor is still that, well, he's he knows his his area of expertise. He knows what he's good with. And when it comes to just being a solo pianist, he doesn't seem to want to step outside those areas. And that's, I think, a a really big detractor on this album. Because this piano work... uh, Steve, who was it that you mentioned before? Uh, Debussy. Debussy did similar work. You you actually showed us one piece before we got on air. One that 
vaguely reminded me of a certain piece in this album, yes. But I saw similarities right away with what was going on, and it seemed so much more complicated in its actual stylistic choices <laughs> without being more complicated overall. I did overall. that for your own musical knowledge. <laughs> Not necessarily to make a direct comparison that could factor into uh, your wrap-up, but, but go with your gut. You see what I'm going with. Go with, with your instinct. It's... It's solid, and it exemplifies a specific idea so well. This album really does do that so well, but the idea feels a little contained, a little confined by what it was set out to be. I guess a lot of the emotional connection I wasn't making might have done more. Um, Then again, uh, the setting is amazingly flushed out. Like, I feel like there are places that this music inspired. I don't even need to visit those places, but I get sort of the the character, the personality of these places just from the music itself. And that's pretty a pretty amazing thing to do. I mean, there are some songs I would say that represent New York or represent uh, San Francisco on the West Coast or represent forests or mountains. I've, I, don't, I don't need to know these places to know that if I ever visit them, I'm probably going to hear this music. That's pretty phenomenal. Uh, it's it's just I want him to do more I want him to experiment I mean I guess I, I feel like he's got the chops to do so and I think that's my big detractor 4.25 4 and a quarter slightly higher than last week so for me I get a similar feeling to last week's album but with a different result. So I feel like these tracks, like last week, are also hyper-connected, very, very integrated. That said, I think it's to the benefit here because I can still distinctly remember each track with the exception of maybe one or two. It's not about the moments here. It's about the overall track and then the moments within. Um, Also, unlike John, I don't really... I didn't get very visual with this. I came from a very, you know, emotional place, deeply emotional in some moments. But I think, you know, I, uh, as I said earlier, I think it's a lot of me imprinting on the music. It's less about he was in that emotional state when he wrote it. It's more his writing brought that emotional state out of me. And I think that's really powerful. Um, You know, it's undeniable that he sticks to a very rigid form, more or less, stylistically. You know, he plays with that that form, but I think more or less he's just using a piano and he doesn't go outside of his Rolodex. Uh, I wouldn't say rigid, and I wouldn't say form. Maybe style, just style. Okay, so then style. Uh, general style. His general style, though, I like, and I don't consider that a problem. I guess with someone... It's, it's like talking about ACDC or Aerosmith or Rolling Stones. These bands that more or less do the same thing every album... And anyone who goes into one of their albums expecting to do anything other than what they do, they're the fools, kind of, in, in a sense. Because, I get that, yeah. Because that's what they do. They're not going to do anything else. And that fan wouldn't get it. <laughs> well, right. Yeah. I, I think that's it. And I think here, that's what I'm getting based on what Steve said. Now, I, don't, I haven't experienced his discography, so I can't say that. But on an album scale, I like that he is... You know, pretty consistent in his in his style, and I like that about it. But we still have all of the hints that even break out a little bit outside that. 
Um, I, you know, narrative-wise and and for the sake of, you know, arc-wise, the album goes through a very cyclical nature. More or less, it comes back on itself. Because one thing we did forget to mention at the end of the album is that the final hand features... Steve had said it a few times during the episode. Oh, yeah, the lyrics. Yeah. Then ah, we'd leave that out. The, the, it does come... Well, I mean, we did mention it a bunch of times. And it also harkens back to the fact that Hent 1 had those lyrics. So yeah. Once again, it was it was explaining all the others. But, but I think that that is what strengthens the album for me and that cyclical basis. And I think for me, what makes this album powerful and memorable. Um, it, and it's outside my comfort zone. I typically don't listen to a lot of music like this. You know, I tend to be a lyrics guy. I lean more towards the pop, you know, or or rock or mainstream side of things. But this I really like. But also, I agree with Steve. I don't know that I would listen to this more than, like, as a mood setter. But it would be a great mood setter. If I'm in a place where I want to read a book, but I want something to kind of set a mood, give an ambiance, this would be great music for that. Um, You know, active listen... I think I'd have to be in the right frame of mind. I don't think I could just go into this cold and go, yeah, I don't care how I'm feeling. I'm going to listen to this album. Like, I, don't, I think that this is very much going to be attached to where my head is at. Um, that's In closing, though, he is a talent. He sh- still takes a moment at the very end to go, hey, check out what kind of talent I am. And <laughs> I, I really dug it. I think that this is in the... It's approaching the upper echelon, and I don't think it needs more instruments or something more complicated or variations to make it a five-star. I think maybe it maybe would just need a more cohesive narrative because the arc is strong. And so that's why I'm putting this at a 4.4. I think this is approaching upper echelon, but because the narrative is so loose and I pretty much only created one based on my own internal emotions, that was is something I'm struggling with a little bit because there's nothing concrete there. Everything else I am completely satisfied with. Well, I've picked this because I thought it would be an interesting discussion, but the funny thing is I realized in retrospect that in picking this, I really was going probably closer to maybe if not my tastes, my something that I was more comfortable with. You know, the probably the whole purpose of this podcast, or one of the many purposes of this podcast, is to uh, put ourselves in positions that we're not always comfortable with, but that we try to talk it out and listen in multiple ways and see how, you know, we could find a way to see the value in just about everything we encounter, right? And also to find a way to be objectively challenge what we what we like on a daily basis. That's what makes, you know, uh, looking at art and reviewing art so fun. And it's why we do it for as long as we do it. It's why we go up to two hours on each and every album. But, yeah, I, I was surprised to find that, all right, well, <laughs> I shouldn't have been surprised. It's, a, it's pure piano music, and we have never done that, and I can't believe we've never done that. All right, yes, I play piano. I'm inclined to listen to this stuff. I find the piano... I, I, I love the piano. It's it's. I don't just play it for any reason. I mean, I may have been stuck into piano lessons when I was really little, and I didn't come to appreciate all the facets of it at the time because I didn't know everything about the instrument at the time. And then once you learn all the like, it is the the piano repertory is the vastest repertory that you will probably find for almost any instrument out there. Maybe only kind of rivaled by the 
guitar, only because there's been a lot of guitar music in the last 50 years specifically. But um, sheet music, it's all about that piano. And because they can hold their own for an album's length. So it's not difficult for me to even imagine the fact that he was able to do this. Uh, it was really a question of the art that he chose. Now, minimalism, all right, if that's the word that we're going to go with, we've talked about it in a variety of ways before, and we always seem to come to somewhat of the same conclusion. There's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it, and we're not exactly sure what that is yet. We know that there's a line somewhere, and I think it revolves around that pie chart that I said, that there's certain things that we know, like fundamentally, deep down, we know that they amount to a full experience of music. And it can really rely on one thing to astronomical levels, such as raw talent or the most complex and interesting rhythms uh, that you've ever heard before. But then everything else might not have to work so hard because they're just perfect being where they are next to that one thing. And I think that's generally a balance that he has sought. One where not as much emphasis is placed on an expansive melody or on rhythm. Once he picks his rhythm, he's, he's pretty much stuck with it. But really on figuration, color, all these kinds of things. It's how he flows from one chord to the next to the next that is really, really interesting. I understand how someone can get a little bored by this on a moment-by-moment -moment scale. But if you look at the the track as a whole, I think often you're going to find that there's, there is a rewarding experience here at the end. And I'm, I'm glad to find that I found a rewarding experience, to some extent, on the album as a whole as well. That's not going to negate what John said earlier. I think that there is a bit of a problem that I have with the word instinct. I think that... This is something I'm encountering recently, where instinct can take you to just about anywhere, but what you do when you get there, I think is what I tend to be a little bit more critical of. Like, once you find that place, you should be happy that you found, you know, the the, the holy grail. You should be glad that you found the fountain of youth. This is, this is what people seek out. But now, use it. Use it f to the best of your ability. And then sometimes I feel like he gets there, but then before you even know it, he's kind of in the next place. He's in the next place. Or maybe he's just there and he's just happy to be standing there, you know? I would like him to use this stuff just a little more. I, I, I'm not exactly sure how, but I guess it would be more along the lines of track 12. Roque Ar Vu, you know, the one that I said had more weighty chord progressions. I felt that there was passion there and everything else is just gliding along. Maybe he likes to glide along. I gotta at least give it credit for reaching out. Having the, what John said, mutability, you know, to reach out to the listener, being more self-aware than, let's say, last week's artist, who was really, I think, maybe more reliant on instinct than Jan Tiersen. So this is in the fours for me, whereas that was not. This it considers other factors and yet still stays close to home. But how far he goes beyond that, ah, that puts me exactly halfway between just getting to the fours and being upper echelon. So I'll put it in the middle to 4.25. All right, nice weighty discussion that we had on this album. Yes. We, uh, it was it, just like last week. I was a little bit fearful that these albums that we get in without the words are getting harder and harder to describe. But I feel like this one, this <laughs> one, I had the words for. Perhaps this we could have been a little more concise in the beginning, but I think we got weightier by the end. But maybe we needed the time to find that discussion. I think that's what an album like this we had to follow deserves. The path. We had to follow the path, and we uh, found yes, our, that's right. We found our destination. Um, so this week's discussion, post-album discussion, 
we we talked upon it last week a little bit. We touched upon, you know, old school idea of like having listening parties and things like that and the proper setting to put with your music. And one thing that did come up that I wanted to touch upon was boredom. Like there's no boredom nowadays. Storm mentioned it for all of half of a second and it got me thinking. Well, Nowadays, we're just not bored. There's so much going on, and we have access to so many forms of entertainment and so many forms of communication with the internet, with our cell phones, with television, and the 750 channels that basic cable gets nowadays that we're never really bored. But this seems to have kind of an adverse effect on, well, the new itself. We love to laud about how we have access to all this different music. And at, at our fingertips on Spotify and Pandora and YouTube, we can listen to anything at any time. And I think that is actually start, starting to turn into an, uh, a legitimate problem. Well, I think it, you bring up a good point. I think it's a problem because, you know, in the past, if you have an album that you really love, you listen to it endlessly all the time to the point where you're sick of it. Um, the term played out. A lot of the times people would say, oh, that song's played out. It got played over and over again too much. Like, think about the Macarena. Nobody oh, likes the Macarena. Mm. And they, yet they still use it at bar mitzvahs and uh, weddings. Th- <laughs> that song was on the radio so much it was impossible to escape. And so there's this mourning period of it where it lasted a long time because people were tired of that song. That said... I feel like we don't really get that played out experience anymore because now if oh, you're sick of a song... Don't we? <laughs> well, I don't think so. I mean, I never listen to the radio anymore. So I for guess me, you can avoid it, sort of. But then I also remember, it's like there's usually going to be situations that you're in where you're going to find someone playing it on, you know, overhead, on the overhead speakers, you know, in a place that you're out at, at a department store, at a bookstore, wherever, or just that friend who won't stop playing that song over and over. I feel Sure, like but I feel like it's less common now because if you're tired of that song, it's so easy to erase it from most of your day-to-day life, except for those public places, but in private music listening, now you don't have to rely on the radio. You, don't, you rely on whatever you curate, and so if you're tired of that new pop hit, you can move on to a different pop hit, like that. And I think that's actually uh, a little bit of a problem for new music as a whole. And this is what I was getting at. New music, you hear it, you love it, you fall in love with it. You, you don't take it out to dinner anymore, though. You don't steep with it and sit with it the same way that you used to because, well, when you get bored, you're not necessarily going to go back to what's familiar. You're going to find something new to entertain you. Oh. And that's a bit of a problem with technology. It's a little bit too easy to find the new so the stuff that was previously new that is only one generation removed from from your happy-go-lucky new place gets forgotten kind of quickly well i'll tell you this it was a little bit unintentional but i think i've actually placed myself in more of a self-imposed boredom also because i i don't experience what you have said before i i really do exhaust singular albums i exhaust singular works and i will stay with them even though i know i know the technology has given me the option to move on right and to just explore what's out there go through my similar artist features i just i don't know there's something that i could not bring me to do that yet like i felt i really did feel like i was not ready like i was not ready to move on from this artist who i and this album that i clearly am already obsessed with 
uh, to an unhealthy amount, <laughs> I feel like I need to run its course. I, I, so I, I'm not sure I've really uh, fallen in with the times here. Also, because I have a little anecdote, I was taught not to be bored. Okay. I mean, it actually, as a moral, I was taught not to be bored by my parents. Specifically, my mother used to tell me this all the time. Right. Like, she used to express derision at, right. let's say, other kids if I was hanging around, you know, and one of them uh, was just like, I'm bored, I'm bored, right? Then I remember she used to, like, tell me, like, later on, being like, ah, don't be like that. Don't, like, it was actually something she taught me that that's... Not a, a good thing to have, I guess, in a world where there are so many possibilities, you can always find something to entertain you. Well, I think... I was, I, uh, it's something I didn't think about at the time, but now looking back on it, I think it was a good moral. Well, I think the moral there is not necessarily to not just be bored, but the idea that you shouldn't complain about boredom because you can find something. You can do something. You can engage in something. And I think when me and John are talking about boredom now, it's this idea that because you're constantly engaged... There are no, there are less introspective personal moments. Now, I mean, yeah. well, let's, let's, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Like, what percentage of America you, with a smartphone do you think brings that smartphone to the bathroom? I mean, the bathroom. It used yeah. to be no, you had to go pee. True. You went you and you peed. Now well, people always you're brought checking. books and newspapers, though. True. Yes, but it wasn't like. Everybody did it. Nowadays, if you're peeing, fifty-fifty yeah, shot, you're going to be on your smartphone. Yeah, on Facebook, I, I, on Twitter, I, 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 on Tumblr. I'm not on this that. Is, I'm not in that camp either. But, yeah, but just because you're not doesn't thing. mean that's not the public. That's the right, that's the enough. majority. I mean, this is why phones are now waterproof. It's to because toilet out. drops were the big problem <laughs> with them. Uh, it's it's we don't have off switches anymore and because we don't have an off switch for information bombarding us. I mean, you, you can, can shut off your phone, you can turn off the TV, but people don't. I don't. I'm not saying right. this is something that I do. Take a tip from Steve Nagel. Self-impose your own. Well, so, so I, actually, I have an anecdote, anecdote to that. Over the summer, uh, my wife Sarah, who is very social media focused, and she's an actress, she's a musician, she's on social media a lot. She made a self-imposed break from social media. She removed Twitter and Facebook from her phone. She stopped. She she, she sort of like a self-imposed uh, Shabbos from mm -hmm. Judaism. Like she would only check on Sundays. That's it. She would just check social media on Sundays. The rest of the week, she could not go on. And she said it made things so much better. She was less stressed. She was less you know, anxious, she was more focused, and I think that's... I, I've been considering doing something very similar, actually, recently. And so I think that's the biggest takeaway from this kind of a discussion is, I think you have, there has to be more self-imposition for how you moderate this kind of stuff. The fact that we have access is part of the problem, but I think the real problem is the mentality of the people in this generation. The yeah. fact that you don't, you know, you're if you just like the rules of working a job or, or, or you know paying the bills, you impose a schedule, a regimen, and I think that has to be that's not necessarily specific for smartphones because it's still a fairly new technology. If you want to be organized about how you consume media, it would be wise to apply that to your habits, your pastimes as well. Yeah. And it's it's kind of sad though because this is actually affecting art as a whole that we've got so much of it that people aren't quite focusing on it in the same manner because not just like the billboards and how all that works with music scene or there's the movies movies while one or two movies a year will stay number one earner for like a month in a row the two three four 
rotates weekly. Like people will drop out from number two to number four to number five within a week. And this is not an unusual occurrence. Same thing with bestseller lists. Number one book might stay that way for a month, but two, three, four drops to 15, 20 pretty darn quickly. We have, we have all these different ways to get a hold of entertainment and to get a hold of art and the entertainment that provides. I just like to dwell on stuff sometimes. Like I will play a music uh, album t- over and over again to no end when I really fall myself into it. I said I wasn't going to so do it this it. year. I do impose it. Like with Mutant, I said I shouldn't do that. I wasn't going to do that. I still listened to it three times the following week. Yeah. It did not stop me well, from immersing myself in it. You know, it's a two-way street, though, because it also is how people can say within uh, traps that probably aren't as advantageous. Like, for instance, how? why do you think, you know, um, such artists that I guess we have really, really respected and we feel should maybe get a little bit more credit for their work uh, and and more popularity should be closer to the top of the charts. Why do you think they're down there? It's probably because, well, there's a lot of people, just by the numbers, the math tells you, a lot of people who are probably stuck within the loop of pop music, you know, where if the top 40 is what they check or in general their sources kind of wind them back at the top 40 anyway, Mm -hmm. then... That's the loop that they're going to be stuck in. One could argue they're doing the same exact thing, but it, that's not really pushing them to discover new music. They could probably stand to maybe take a tip from uh, from the rest of the world, from the people who are more inclined to seek, seek, seek out the new thing, because that would lead them to better places. Yeah, and um, I th- better is a relative term, but certainly be more worldly. Yeah, or more informed. Yeah, I yeah, and I think that that's that's the overall problem in the information age as it were is that we have so much stuff but while you're saying that it can be a negative because we're not dwelling with or focusing on stuff i think it can be a positive too because there are artists that for sure would not see the light of day 10 years ago that now have a sustainable audience we've spoken at length of how awesome it is to be able to experience you know being an indie artist now being an indie artist 10 years ago are vastly different i mean we've had plenty of guests on the show that are just like great artists and they got their start because they were able to network on twitter and things like that um or people like the guys on YouTube that we love to talk about, like Markiplier, who is, you know, a, a force to be reckoned with and actually is able to do so much good because he just became popular on a social network video yeah. game show type thing. And it's when you can get a hold of those pieces of art and entertainment that it's it's really great. There's always the but, though, and I think that's something we always have to keep looking at because we've talked about how the problems of technology affect the music industry. This is the real time uh, that between the comment last week and the fact that I knew your wife was doing that self-imposed social media thing from a few, it was a few months ago. Yeah, it was back over the summer. Yeah, that it was like, I don't, I think that it's a little bit of a problem in the music appreciation or at least the general art appreciation. I, well, I feel like we're all a little removed, the three of us at least are removed from that because we consume art in a very different way than any than, we, than a normal human, I guess I'll say. Well, yeah, I, I still bemoan the fact that I don't listen to much music outside what we do on the podcast. See, but but I, most I, people don't say it's Monday. Oh, got to pick something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, um, but that said, I think that a self-imposition, I think, is the big takeaway from this. You have to be able to restrain and guide yourself through all of this media because there's just so much of it you could get lost pretty easily you have to find your your high you have to find your you know thing that gets yeah. you going and can even inspire you but also 
don't look to keep supplementing it with another five second burst. Like keep yeah. with it. Try to understand why that's great, it's, and then search that greatness, not just another thing. It's the difference I think between. Uh, finger quotes, legal drugs that help you versus illegal drugs that become addicting and can ruin things for you. It's this idea of moderation and this idea of knowing how to manage yourself and those things, whatever they are, whatever the vice is, whatever the, the art is. Why do you yeah, keep pointing case. at me? <laughs> I've actually stopped all those vices just uh -huh. about, except for cigarettes. I'm not I'm saying not nothing. i cigarettes or Red Bull or or coffee. <laughs> yeah, red, caffeine and nicotine. Red Bull Creek. On that note. <laughs> yeah. um, Steve, before we get into what we're doing next week, do you have a spam for us? Yeah, I do. There's going to be a day where I go, Steve, do you have a spam for us? And he's just going to go, no. And then it'll <laughs> end. be the same. <laughs> we have gone through all that the spam. That means Google stopped spam, and that's never going to happen. happen. Yeah. You should try this service for getting more traffic. HTTP colon slash slash gmbal dot com slash 2590. I use this service on all my blogs, and I am very happy. This service will get you targeted visitors with no effort on your end. Thank me later. I no. don't. I'm not even going to thank you now. I really? Think you, you're, I not think gonna, you, you're not going to thank Jennifer? Is that was Jennifer? Yep. So it's a real person's name. It sounds like a real thing, but it's not. But it's spam. Yeah. I, what I would do, though, is I don't, I don't yeah, want any traffic going to that website. So can you actually try to not say the HTTPs anymore. Like, I don't want to populate a website that, that, is, that mm. is kind of, you know, shyster about it. True. Yeah. Mm. I don't you know. Let me bleep it? Yeah, bleep it, if you would, please. Well, Thank well, you. They'll, we'll ne see. they'll never know why I did that at the time. Oh, you're going to cut all this? No, they'll never know why, when they encountered the bleep, why I'm bleeping it, because it won't make <gasps> sense until cool. you explain it now. That's how time works. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, man, they'll understand cool. after, but not at the moment of. I did not understand time until this point. That's <laughs> unsurprising. To anyway, me and everyone else. What are we doing next week? Because we can go on with this for a while. Right. So next week, we're, I'm picking a band that I'm familiar with. I think we're all familiar with, some of us more than others. But um, A second-hand band, if you would. Not for me, I mean, but but maybe for you guys. Um, so this, uh, we're doing Taking Back Sunday's latest record, Tidal Wave. And I'm excited about it for several reasons. A, their, their original, original second vocalist, not the lead vocalist, is back in the band and hadn't been in the band for a while. But also... From what I've heard, this leads to, lends to be more like their later albums. And Louder Now, which is, I think, their third or fourth record, is one of my favorites. And so hearing that this album has a similar sound to one of my favorite records excites me. Um, Taking Back Sunday is kind of a staple of the rock community. They've been around for a while. They've kind of ebb and flowed between emo and just kind of modern rock. They and, kind of just like always been there at this point yeah. in, in, in modern music yeah. scene. And so I'm excited to bring that album on because even though I'm a fan of the band, I don't know this record previously. And so we'll we'll attack it together. Um, attack? That's kind of... It's kind of mean. Can we just eloquently we'll, describe it together? We'll go into the fire together. Ooh, exactly. Ooh, I, I went like one that. way, he went the other. Yeah, yeah. all right. Interesting. Uh, all right, on that note, and that burning passion, remember, <laughs> music is life, and, and life, life is, is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one -on -one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good.
If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.